Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host on our ever-growing adventure. Camaraderie, beautiful places, challenging shooting, and great dog work. That's what it's all about around here. And if you love that, then please tell somebody else about it as well and get in on the conversation. We have a great one in store for you today. Another little-known bird that has mythical proportions in the Boy Scout world and others. We'll dispel some of the notions that snipe hunting is futile. Talking with a true believer, Michael Salamone. Should be interesting. So next time you're up in the hills, yeah, the hills. Um... You might learn something and uh, you might want to bring some non-toxic ammo along. Anyway, on top of that, we'll talk public access. As always, I've got some advice on making your road trip better for your dog. It's all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products here on South Dakota's Ringneck Nation. And my good friend, Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Lagavulin, Tim. How's your week going? Having a good time? Getting ready? Maybe we'll do a podcast on opening day um, about our anticipation. You know, twas the night before Christmas kind of stuff. I think that might be fun. So there's a promise to you. I'll start working on that. And then uh, maybe we'll work on one that takes place right on opening day and see how everybody did. Uh, Well, now I'm committed, aren't I? (laughs) Are you working on training? I know I am. Uh, Flick and I um, probably did our longest run in, you know, well, since the weather got hot. Um, He was just beat, so was I. But it was nice to have a little moisture coming out of the ground after a serious storm a couple nights ago. Yeah, funny how that works. We're working on uh, steady to wing shot and fall. And I don't know, I have I shared this with you? Maybe I haven't, but uh, you know, I'm a cheapskate and I don't have that many hawks. <laughs> hawks, there's a, there's a Freudian slip for you. I don't have that many pigeons that I can afford to give them up to the hawks every few days. So my bird launchers or even just a big weight attached to a long tether is how I get my birds to go up and come down without killing them so that Flick can get some practice on that last part of it, the fall itself. I'm using some decoy cord. I think it's called uh, tangle-free decoy cord. It works pretty well. The rest of the stuff I've tried just gets all tangled up and and we don't get any flight out of the birds. But but that seems to work if you're looking for a way to cheap out on, on your bird bills. That's worth taking a look. See everybody doing a little water work out there. The training um, days and the testing days are getting a little bit closer together on the calendar. Good luck, anybody who's testing out there. Looking forward to seeing everybody at our next NAVDA chapter test. But no matter what your dog game is, I hope you're having a good time and going to finish up what's left of the season before you get to the really important stuff. And speaking of important stuff... take a look at some of the good news out there and some of the bad news 
Remington says they're amping up their capacity. You know, they've been through a whole bunch of things, a couple bankruptcies, a sale, and then uh, a split um, so that the Remington Ammo Company is now different than the Remington Gun Company. Remington is still the real name for the ammunition plant. The other guys are going by Rem Arms these days. But anyway, their new ammo plant in Arkansas, up and running almost at full capacity. Woohoo! It's about time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, about 80 to 90% capacity. That's the good news. The bad news is the rifle hunters are getting most of the benefits out of that, although they are starting to make more nitro steel shot shells. So you duck and goose hunters um, have a little bit more to get, you know, get excited about. And then some brand new products coming from Remington as well. I've been checking out the shelves and yeah, we're seeing a little more here and there, especially in the 12 gauge world. Um, some of the restrictions on how much you can buy have also uh, been lifted at one of my local stores. You can now buy five boxes. Unfortunately, you have to buy five boxes at 12 gauge. There's no 20 out there. And on the bad news if, uh, side, if, if you he feed your dog any products from the outfit called Sunshine Mills, well, be careful. Uh, they're being recalled. Uh, they have toxic levels of aflatoxin. It's a byproduct from a mold called Aspergillus flavus. Uh, they go by various names, so check the packaging on your dog food and see if it is actually made by Sunshine Mills. Most of the products that are gone bad have a best if used by date of February 11th, 2022. So be careful out there. Please don't take any chances. Your dog thanks you for it. All right, the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products. Crafted at the highest caliber, I keep ragging on you about checking out their brand new gun cases. They are cases that will last, well, more than a lifetime. But on top of everything else out there, you ought to get on their mailing list for, if for no other reason that you'll find out about new stuff like that before everybody else. Sageandbreaker.com is where you do all that sageandbreaker.com and will i see you in huron south dakota this year i'll be there hunthuronsd.com is where you go to get a free information pack links to all sorts of useful information from public access maps to discounts and coupons once you ask for that information pack you're also eligible to win one of three hotel and restaurant prize packages Sign up for the hunting packet at hunthuronsd.com. And maybe I'll see you there. Thank you. Well, this ought to be a lot of fun. Um, almost everybody knows that um, snipe hunt is a synonym for futility in many ways, but it's not. If you're out there in the real world, you've probably met a snipe or two. And I mean the real deal, you know, the kind that, that, well, Upland Woodcock, would I be safe to call them that? I don't know. That's why I brought in Michael Salamone. He just wrote an article for Upland Almanac magazine on snipe hunting, which I actually did once. So, Michael, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What prompted that? I mean, why, why would anybody care enough about Snipes to write an ar- a whole article about him? I think uh, your, your intro kind of nailed it, the fact that it's a, a, a fallacy for so many people. That's, uh, you know, we all, I'll never forget the last snipe hunt we sent a, a few kids on. I, I was a grown adult at the time and I still got it, just obscene pleasure out of doing it. <laughs> and it worked well, by the way, everybody. Uh, and my buddy Dave, you'll remember it, won't you, Dave? Uh, but anyway, uh, there is, uh, give us a reality check. Tell me a little bit about snipe and where you're finding them. Well, I am hunting them here in Colorado, and I'm hunting them up really, really pretty high in some uh, high alpine valleys. Um, they're underneath the small game brochure. They're listed as Wilson's Snipe, and I agree with you. Uh, sometimes when I've gone to stores to buy ammunition, um, and people ask me what I'm trying to find, because I almost always shoot steel when I'm in these situations. Yeah, Just, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've done that for years, and I don't really find that it is uh, a handicap. Um, it doesn't take more than a few pellets to, to put down a snipe. Um, so I, I often hunt with a really light steel, but when I go to buy it and they ask what I'm hunting, um, they often will walk away and not help me anymore. <laughs> I, I guess trying to pull off the joke snipe hunt on somebody is kind of sort of a left-handed insult, isn't it? You know, and yeah, and I think for some people, they probably, you know, depending on their reaction, probably were uh, guilty and fell uh, fell for it themselves. So uh, there may be a bad taste in their mouth or whatever. But I've had it happen more than once, and uh, I don't know. It, it's just uh, something that uh, it's something that I found when I first moved out here to Colorado. I'd always grown up uh, devouring magazines uh, when I could, um, you know old field and stream and sports and field and just anything I could get my hands on. So I knew what a snipe was when I moved out here well, and a gentleman had told me about this area and I was fishing it in the summertime and kept flushing these little birds. And when they would flush close, I knew exactly what they were. Um, and the call there, they had that kind of scape scape that they scream when they, uh, get flushed. And, uh, that's very distinctive of a snipe. So, uh, when I found out that I had those, I came back that first fall that I could hunt up here in Colorado, and that was uh, 1993, and I've been hunting them out here ever since. Well, you know, it's it's fascinating. You talk about uh, in the high country, 10,000 feet is part of the uh, article's title. Um, I find them much lower than that, and, you, you know, anywhere there's, there's significant water, and significant is a relative term, anywhere there's standing water, particularly, yeah. I think, uh, you can find them depending on many other variables i'm sure what what are the other some of the other descriptors you would use to tell us where you'd find these birds i you know um i was a part of a snipe hunters forum and there are members that were all over the united states so i know that a lot of people hunt them clear down at sea level and then i know people that hunt them in texas and but i, I don't know i haven't run into many people that hunt them up where i am um what i found and i was just up in that same valley where uh, I, I spend most of my time um, hunting snipe, um, and what I found is where beavers have done the most work and have choked up the stream and the flow, uh, it creates a, a, a boggy area in, in newly flooded grass, and that seems to be the biggest attractor for snipe when they're migrating through. There are some that I find, you know, 
all throughout the summer. But when they start to migrate through come September 1st um, and into September, there can be significant numbers of birds in, a, in one area. And uh, you can go through a, a, a box or two of shells. It can be kind of humbling to some people that aren't used to shooting them because of the speed and agility of the birds when they come up at first. But um, I, I hunt them with a flusher right now. Um, I had a Brittany that used to point them, which was just a pure pleasure. And I had a flushing breed that would help me find the dead birds, the down birds, when uh, the Brittany would uh, do her work, and I would do mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a team effort, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. yes, it is. Um, um, you know, hold that thought on agility, because I really want to talk about that. It's one of the more mystifying things about snipes, to me at least. But um, you just described classic snipe country, and also, by the way, classic brook trout country which is uh, one of my passions as well and so that's where i'm fine you know you could you might draw a correlation between brook trout and snipe now that i think about it but uh but the the idea not, that Bruce scott not to interrupt you but i was up there scouting for birds just a few days ago with my new puppy and i took a little four-way fiberglass and i caught about 40 brook trout and that's what i was doing in the ponds um, I'm going to cut that part out because it just makes me mad to hear about 40 brook trout, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I would have paid money for four brook trout a week ago. <laughs> uh -oh, uh -huh. Okay. So, oh, so if everybody hasn't figured it out yet, Michael Salamone is, is more than just a casual angler. We'll get into that as well. I hope later in the discussion, but, but, but you know, this whole idea of, what I'll describe as marsh, you described it uh, much the same way, with grass. It seems to be that that kind of semi-flooded grass is one of the key indicators, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, if I can find that that flooded grass, I think they are definitely in there probing. One for worms, so much in the same way a woodcock does, but I think they're also looking for a lot of the aquatic nymphs that you know we would use uh, and associate with fly fishing. I think they eat a tremendous amount of those. You know, that's a good point. Have you ever opened up a crop and looked at what they got in there? You, you know, I have. Um, and I have to admit, I, I, I have found a lot of worms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I see similar stuff along um, the, the meandering stream where there is muddy bank along sure. the edge. Yeah. You'll see that kind of that pencil hole marking like Woodcock will do. And I'll even see that same kind of chalking from their scat uh, on the on the mud um, as well. That kind of indicates that of their, you know, their presence. You know, I, uh, I, I'm just enough colorblind that I don't trust myself when I'm sharp tail hunting, Hungarian partridge hunting, uh, let alone confusing them with uh, hen pheasants. Uh, but but there's the same challenge with snipe which are closely related and resemble everything else from lesser uh, 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 to, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of aquatic long-legged birds that, uh, that yes. look enough like them. Is there anything distinguishing factors that we know we're shooting at something that's legal? Um, you know, when they do come up, they almost always, I would say 95% of the time, let out with the call. And it's that scaping, and it's a and it's an often often repeated as they take off. Uh, escape that scaping call. I look for their uh, wide wings and their kind of erratic wing beats because when they do come up, they kind of dart back and forth, left and right, before they start to straighten out and turn and bank. 
Um, so I can recognize them a lot from their flight. Here, I don't have all that many uh, false yeah. Yeah. birds, you know, so to speak. Um, I understand that some people that hunt them closer uh, to sea level down in Florida and stuff, they got, you know, with sandpipers and other type things, um, uh, kill deer and things like that. They have to be careful that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're pulling up on the right birds, I think, there. Um, here, I don't have that much of a problem. I have to admit, over the years, I have, uh, believe, uh, I've shot a couple Sora. Yeah, over the yeah. Uh, the, uh, rails. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're, they're very few, and when they got up, um, they were pretty obvious about what they were. But I don't see them with the regularity that I do with the snipe. Uh, I can recognize uh, the habitat um, for what the snipe like, and I can mimic it and find it, you know, in, in – numerous other locations uh if i'm finding sometimes it's just a small patch and maybe it's just you know got a few birds in it but it doesn't take many birds you know to to make it a hunt you know you you talk about all those other birds and and they're out there and, and you know they're storied in in many uh many books from from long ago, if you will, the, the beginnings of American wing shooting. And the Sora rail is in there. The snipes are in there. There are a few others yeah. as well. Um, so there, there, there is some literature out there that is worth taking a look at. And, and in many cases, uh, over, for example, on the East Coast, you can shoot a number of those other species as well. But in, in, in much of the country these days, it's only the snipe of those birds that's legal, isn't it? I, as far as I know, yes. I haven't really had much time to chase them outside of uh, Colorado, but th that that would be my understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, there are still some places where some other birds are shot right alongside them. Um, but you're correct. You know, I mean, if you look through uh, about the, the, the history of wing shooting, um, snipe, you know, goes all the way back over into England and France and um, extremely popular over in Europe. Um I, I've gotten some recipes that have come from uh, France on how to fix snipe. So it, it's definitely a place that they've been around a long time. And if you look at the artwork, there's a tremendous amount of artwork that's come up that's even, you know, historic artwork uh, uh, from wing shooting that you can find in sporting galleries that snipe is uh, a major focus. So I'm envisioning a, um, I'll call it a fin. Now there's a highfalutin word for you, F E N. Yes, it's it's kind of kind of a swamp, um, in the middle of a freaking desert, and uh, and that's the last time I took a swing on a snipe, and he, I I missed uh, because he, he was in the in the middle of that uh, the jinking and juking that you were describing. So if we're going to take a shot at one of these birds how long before they quit doing that and straighten out and fly right as the phrase goes you know they'll probably juke back and forth four or five times maybe and then they'll start, definitely start but it also depends on the terrain like mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm hunting them in a mountain valley so if they start to go out too far they're starting to hit the incline on the edge of the valley for the for the uh, alpine trees so they're kind of pinched in a little bit tighter um i don't know if it's the exact same um i've heard it has been um when you hunt them down like in florida mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that uh you just need to g give yourself a pause or two and then they will stop and they'll start to curve or they'll end up going straight away and uh like i said it doesn't take a, but a couple pellets um in one of these birds but 
you shoot one at distance, I hope you have a dog to help you find it. Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, it seems like the ones I've seen actually are as, as skittish as any wild bird I've ever met. You, most of the time, you just watch them flying away in the distance. Uh, and, yeah. You know, let, let's just put it on, on the table right now. Everybody, listen carefully. These are defined as migratory birds. So Correct. what else you're doing out there? You got to kind of adhere to all the regulations that would uh, that would apply to a duck or a goose. Michael, you said you're shooting steel most of the time. Um, I can't think of anything else we need to worry about except that maybe you can't carry any lead shot while you're carrying your steel. Am I right? Well, you know, during duck season, yeah, well, there there is definitely the carryover. Um, I believe before then, because they're listed in the small game, I mm -hmm. think you can, I think you can pursue them in lead, but because I'm always hunting in that wetland situation, I'm hunting places where, you know, we just talked about, I mean, where I'm going and hunting and fishing for brook trout. I just, I, I, I think there was a reason they stopped shooting lead a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, know? It, so. and you know, the, uh, here's how I justify it or rationalize it. If I'm going to be carrying non-toxic shot, uh, then I can shoot anything that gets in the air. Correct. And I really enjoy the time of season when there is uh, waterfowl and I can hunt waterfowl. The, there's a lot of the places that we're talking about where I hunt snipe, where um, there is a tremendous amount of teal early season. Yeah. And there's, a, yeah. There, there's an early season teal that is just fantastic. But once duck season really comes in, I can shoot – and I'll end up shooting mallards, maybe some widgeon, some teal, and snipe all in one day. And uh, your game bag can get pretty heavy. Well, there's so there's some real joy in having a mixed bag like that as well. I think it really keeps you on your toes, uh, not just uh, not just mentally, but maybe emotionally too. You know, I enjoy it. Um, I, I I know we're crossing over into waterfowl, not so much as upland. The the snipe really is more the upland bird that we're talking about. But when that time of year does come around, um, it's just one of the things that I really enjoy. It's a fact that it's it's a it's a pleasurable fact that uh, I have a varied amount of wing shooting and. Uh, I do enjoy the table fare, so when I get a mixed bag like that, I'm I'm already thinking ahead to what I can do. Well, we're going to talk more about all of that stuff, but the last question before our, our break, Michael Salamone. Uh, by the way, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Michael, um, one of the joys of this is, uh, yeah, to a great degree, um, it's a social game as well. You're always hunting with somebody else. You have any special hunting partners out there? Um, I do have one gentleman here that grew up in the valley that um, we have a tremendous amount of locations that are uh, uh, we, we found out when we started hunting about 15 years ago together that, uh, hey, wait a minute, I hunt there. Why don't I see you? And, uh, you know, um, so since then, um, we, we've really bonded. Um, and uh, he's, you know, one of those people that when I'm out in the woods, because we are, you know, I mean, you're hunting at 10,000 feet. There's some extreme measure to some of it, and maybe it might just be the road in. But uh, you want to have somebody you can trust and rely on when you're in that kind of a situation. Um, I've got a couple places out here that are really snipe honey spots, and my dad would religiously come out here for the opening day of bird season. And uh, a couple of those honey spots, um, I had to 
promise to secrecy and not let anybody else come in. And he said, those are just for dad. <laughs> uh, fair enough. So, uh, yeah. And he deserves it because for all I know, he bought you your first shotgun. Oh, yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> okay, dad. Thanks a lot. Uh, I wish I could say that myself, but uh, anyway, good, good on you and your dad and, and your friend, you know, it, I don't want to get maudlin about all that stuff. Instead, I'm going to give you a, a breather right there, Michael Salamone. Hang on while the rest of you pay attention to me because I have a few bits of commercial message for you. Starting with happyjackinc.com. Manning and Joe Exum are the second and third generation owners of this great company that I've been working with for probably 20 years now. Flick gets the benefit in almost all respects. He's uh, taking some things internally. He uses some things externally. We take care of his pads, his coat, parasites of both types, all because Happy Jack has remedies for all of those things and more, including open wounds and managing them so they heal fast and they are well lick free how's that sealed from the elements including your dog's tongue learn more about all their products at happyjackinc.com happyjackinc.com and if you're taking care of your dog you're taking care of your dog on the road put them in a rough land performance kennel my friends Doug and Elisa are building performance kennels. Yeah, kind of like those coolers that uh, those other guys make. Designed in a way that will protect your dog just like the cage in a race car protects the driver. Fun stuff too, multiple colors available, some practical and useful accessories that actually make your life easier and your dog's life safer and better. Learn more about all that stuff at RoughlandKennels.com. And rough is spelled like your dog would spell it. Rough, R-U-F-F, Land Kennels, Roughland Kennels. Good owner. That's all you get, Michael Salamone. Come on back to the Upland Nation podcast and tell us more about this incredible world of snipe hunting. I am intrigued I now. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, um, 10,000 feet is a daunting altitude for anybody. I guess elevation would be a better term for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 how much walking do you have to do to get to 10,000 feet and snipe country? Or can, because of what you've already described, I'm thinking maybe you can just drive to some of these places. There's a tremendous amount of places I can drive right to. There are um, locations that are right along the roadside in certain areas. Um, and beaver activity can really increase the presence of snipe. So even if it might not be a naturally wet area, um, beaver definitely increase the, the presence of snipe just by uh, pushing that extra water up into the grass. And, and you know it's funny again i'm thinking of where i was last well part of last week and uh and uh, the beaver activity had increased but the water level had dropped um everywhere in the west everybody knows that uh, the water levels are at you know record lows 
But thanks to that beaver activity, there was actually more flooded ground than there was before when we were there two years ago. So uh, is it just the grass and just the beaver dams or are there other factors we should look for for good snipe habitat? You know, I find those to be the best ones. Um, I do find any area that has uh, uh, willows uh-huh. tend to hold quite a bit of them. Um, we have a lot of red willows that are in some of that uh, marshy type terrain. Uh, it, and any kind of little meandering stream if it's slow. But we often have uh, times even later in the year where uh, we might be just specifically hunting ducks and along the Colorado River and they'll be along the Colorado River. And I think those are just kind of late migratory birds. I don't think they're, you know, resident birds that are going to be here for any amount of time. Um, but we do um, bump into a few birds when, when we're duck hunting, even late in the, you know, in, in, when there's snow around, which uh, can be a surprise. Oh, I'll bet. You know, um, I keep wanting to draw a correlation between woodcock and snipe. And yes, they're related in a few ways. They're, you know, not quite the same bird, not even quite the same size or color, I think, but I'm not even sure about that. But you mentioned willows, and I'm thinking willows are to snipe what uh, alders might be to woodcock, aren't they? Yeah, they can very well. Um, definitely. Um, I think the woodcock is just a little bit more of a plumper, rounder bird. Yeah. From the yeah. One. And uh, the, the snipe really are not that big um it, it, it's remarkable uh their 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 speed for when they're flying so some people um might not see the the reward factor that i i get um i enjoy the shotgunning i enjoy them on the table um i enjoy like you said the camaraderie with uh, a couple good people that uh, really uh, appreciate the same kind of things um that gentleman i was talking about that uh I hunt with I grew up around here um he and I do quite a bit of grouse hunting together too so um his name's Mike Moser and uh he's just a solid bird hunting individual there's been a few times where we've both been sitting around with elk tags in our pocket and we decide to go bird hunting out here further west most grouse are shot by elk hunters <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's a, there's some truth to that I know exactly what you mean <laughs> well, I understand completely. It, it, you know, I've, I've never understood you guys who actually shoot big things that need to be carried out in pieces because your season's over. If you're, if you're a decent shot, your season's over with a couple rounds. Uh, but that's your problem, not mine. You know, when, when you're out there with Mike or with your dad or with anybody else or just by yourself, let, let, take me through a hunt. How are we going to start? What are we going uh, to do? How do the dogs fit into all of this? <clears throat> you know, the last few years, uh, uh, that other gentleman and I both have had uh, yellow labs, and they just they work a lot closer. You know how the flushing breeds can be; um, they don't cover nearly as much ground. Uh, my dad, when he would come out, he had English setters, and uh, it would take them sometimes a little bit of a transition because they weren't around snipe all that much. It wasn't a bird they were extremely familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Brittany I had when I was growing up, uh, year, years ago, um, when I first moved out here, she was my first baby. Um, she, I trained her from very young with wings, and she could point them from a, a, a considerable distance. 
Um, so when I'm working through these areas, I am walking often. Often I'm walking right along the little meandering stream. Um, the beaver dams where it does trickle out or over a beaver dam, um, it has a small course. And that often has a, a soft bank along the edge of it depending on how much water is coming over that beaver dam, but usually the beaver don't let, allow much water to come over it. Um, so I'll walk along that small course and uh, we'll often bump birds there, but it's really when I get to those beaver dams where I find the birds in quite a few different locations. I mean, I'll often find birds right on top of the beaver dam where the sticks and the new mud is. Um, I've seen them running right along the top of the beaver dams before. Um, on the soft corners when you reach each edge of the beaver dam um, where kind of water's been pushed up into new grass. I often find that's a really good spot that I'll find. Uh, um, you often uh, will flush these birds in pairs. Oh. That, that, seems, that, that seems to be a spot where I almost always am looking for a second bird to come up, especially after uh, the shot from the first one. Um, I'll be looking for a second bird to come up. And then that the far side of the beaver dam, uh, of the beaver pond, where the water's kind of pushed backwards away from, from you, um, that, that's just really, really good area. Sometimes it can be kind of hard to work. There can be uh, little trenches that the beavers create, and they can be surprisingly deep. So you could end up stepping in a little farther than you expected if, you, if you're not careful. Yeah, I know those trenches really well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, they can be they can be a, a hunt breaker um, uh, and really damage a knee and and even dogs. I mean, I've, yeah, I, I I've had a dog just completely d disappear into one of them, come up and looking looking at me like, why didn't you tell me that was there? <laughs> yeah, and that's not counting the holes. I mean, the, the, a lot of those we call them beaver slides. Those trenches they they generally yeah. run down from drier ground down into the water. Um, yeah. But some of those slides end or begin with a hole in the, in the tall grass. And, yes, holes uh, are disguised. Yeah, so be careful about that stuff. Um, you yeah. know, we haven't really talked about it, and for some reason I can't even get on the Internet at the moment. So you're going to have to describe for us, Michael Salamone. Yes, the, sir. Uh, the, uh, take us from the tip to the tail. Tell us what a snipe looks like. Oh, yeah. You know, they are a very pretty little bird. Um, they've got kind of a, 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 a stripe that goes back across their head that kind of circumvents their eye um, and, and goes across the top of the, the, their uh, of, of brown and white across the top of their head. Um, they have um, wings that are often used in fly tying. I have seen quite a few uh, wet fly patterns. Um, that are used with snipe feathers um, and they have a natural variegation to some of their smaller feathers um, especially on their tail and uh, just uh, all throughout their body I mean if you're a fly tire I think you could find quite a bit of uh, material there that you could use um, and it's a soft feather that really kind of I think that's why it's used more for the, the wet flies because yeah. it does seem to kind of breathe in the water um, on the flies that I've had that have been tied with snipe feathers Body size, I'm going to say a big fist, like a pro wrestler fist size. Sound about right? Yeah, you know, maybe not even. I mean, yeah. uh, I bet it's probably the same size as about your fish. Um, yeah. Maybe you know, a, a, a good orange. Uh, they have, And the beak is maybe two to three inches long. Um, and it is, uh, 
they I, they can manipulate it some, you know, like uh, the woodcock can once they probe around in there. Um, uh, their legs are kind of a, a, a greenish shade that um, comes down into a, a long kind of clawed toed foot. Uh, but they do have a long leg that's probably, you know, four inches long. And it, they do uh, can like to run. They do like to run considerably, um, especially uh, along those muddy areas I was talking about, along a meandering stream or across the muddy beaver dam right on top of the dam. But um, I, I, I don't know if they run all that much in front of dogs. I think once dogs start to enter the equation, they hold tight until they flush. Well, that's good to know, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it um, for a lot of reasons. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I can't imagine trying to run in that tall grass with water on it, but, um, hey, they're experts at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, that, that, and they just get through, and, and I do think that, like I was saying, that when they're running, they're running more along the, the, the little muddy banks of the stream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think the grassy areas, they do tend to kind of – they, they do tend to uh, hunker down a little bit and re- and rely on, you know, their camouflage is un- unbelievably incredible when they're on the ground. Um, that's why I said if, if you do knock a bird down, you want a dog with you because if you didn't mark it correctly, they just seem to melt away. They disappear. Um, I know a lot of people that hunt them down in, in Florida that don't necessarily use dogs, and I think that uh, when you get down there and you start enter- entering into hazards of alligators and snakes and all kinds of <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if they use dogs for the, don't use dogs for that reason or whatnot and just have an incredible eye. But um, when I've uh, shot them before, and uh, like I said, they'll often come up in doubles. If you hit that first one, I often won't take that shot if I don't have a dog, and I will just go straight for that one bird um, if I was lucky enough to hit it. Um, it, it it's a humbling one where uh, I'll often tell friends that are coming for the first time to bring an extra box of shells and they kind of snicker at me but when they're walking out at the end of the day and they don't have many shells left uh, they, they know I wasn't kidding um, because the numbers of birds are here when they're migrating through there can be days when I've put up probably 30 birds wow so you know if you're looking for new experience and and maybe a, maybe a, a stellar experience sniper you know they're not just that running joke from boy scouts in elementary school you, you, you tell us you've been doing this for a while here what is the biggest mistake we make if we're if we're snipe hunting what do you guys wish you what when you slap your forehead it's because you did what you know the birds, if you watch them, when we were talking about their erratic flight and how they kind of go out and straighten out and will often circle and bank, you can watch them land yeah. and go and reflush that same bird. And oftentimes I don't put enough faith in where I knew where that second bird went down. And will often, rather than know where it is and have kind of a, a bit of a more pre-planned shooting experience, um, I still might be surprised. Um, on that second flush yeah i got a buddy who um he he wears a little pair of binoculars around his neck when we're bird hunting Uh uh-huh for things like that absolutely uh, he's more of a you know he's a big game hunter but he'd rather carry a shotgun you know right yeah 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 um you know uh I, i think that's a great idea i bet you that probably comes useful with your sharp tail hunting chuckers too save you a lot of uphill walking 
I like that uh, binocular idea. That might uh, that might be helpful. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times uh, I also think that people are overgunned when they're snipe hunting. Um, uh -huh. th this is small gun aficionado. I mean, if you're hunting with a 20 gauge, you're on the larger end of the scale. Uh, but uh, it, it because it's really sometimes if you want to take those first shots, you need to be up and quick and swinging that gun pretty fast. Once they get out and straighten out a little bit, you know, uh, about any shotgun will do. But I find a light shotgun and light loads that don't really bang me around with heavy recoil allow me to, to kind of get back into the game for a second shot if I need to, um, which is often needed. What kind of shot sizes do you think are the best for a snipe hunt? You know, uh, I, I like I was saying, I'll often I'll hunt with sevens, seven steel, steel, which is really, yeah. yeah, which is really light. That's why some of the people at the the gun counters, when I ask them for seven steel, they're asking me, well, y'all, you want to up your size, you know, if you're shooting steel, and what, what are you hunting? And I tell them what I'm hunting, and then they don't help me anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it doesn't take many pellets, so uh, a lot a, a lot of these lighter loads. Um, can can do the trick for you um i hunt them with sixes when i can hunt teal and i kind of will we'll shoot the teal with sixes as well yeah that's you know it, it's like even on the lead side you know so why doesn't somebody make a six and a half uh same with, <laughs> same for teal you know that that would be perfect for a teal snipe load but yes. but but yeah, I, I guess someday we'll have to do it ourselves yeah, no, I would agree with you. A six and a half. I had never really thought about that, Scott. That's a uh, that's a really good idea. Okay, if anybody <laughs> does it, buy I, those by the, I'd buy those by the case. I I want some free cases of that if somebody makes it. Um, yeah. Okay, on the opposite side of the coin, instead of what is the most common mistake we make, what 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 should we all do more of if we're snipe hunting, or we want to be a snipe hunter? Um, I, I look for those numbers of birds. Look for uh, those flooded marshes that'll pop up on um, Google Maps and Topo Maps. Um, those uh, uh, those marshy areas. And out here in Colorado, I'm hunting exclusively public land. I'm not hunting anything that's on private property. So everywhere I'm going is someplace that anybody else could be. Um, I just don't think that that many people around here know there's that many of those kind of birds around, you know, know what a snipe is, you know, it's such a, it's been such a, a, a trick for so many people in their life. Um, uh, I, I look for those marshy areas sometimes around um, even still waters like big lakes mm -hmm. where the water, where the water's coming in and out of those areas um, will often hold snipe. They'll often run the banks depending on the bank structure of, uh, some of those high alpine lakes, but you don't have to be at 10,000 feet to hunt these birds. It's just a pretty unique idea and a unique hunt to be at 10,000 feet and hunting a bird with this kind of agility and this good on the table for me uh, is just, it's one of my favorites. Leave your burlap sack at home and yeah. uh, bring a light gun. Michael, describe the your favorite snipe hunting location let's go from the from the earth on up to the peaks tell me all about it um those flooded fens like you were talking about fen that we have out here in the high country are the places that i try to look for 
Um, I, I do a tremendous amount of hunting as long as I can until the, the freeze kind of moves me down with in, in elevation. Um, I'll try to hunt up as high as a, a, and as long as I can. Um, so I'll look for those meandering streams, those flooded willows, those beaver pond stress, uh, you know, that distressed areas that are overly uh, uh, pushed up with by water where there's a tremendous amount of new beaver activity. I think new beaver activity is something that's uh, kind of key with these. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, older beaver ponds, you know, are always are, are pretty established structure, but these, I think those, those new beaver ponds that are newly flooded areas and a lot of these valleys that uh, I hunt them in areas that I do, locations that I do hunt them, um, the beaver changes everything every year. So what may have been the hot pond or the, uh, a, a tricky, really good area, green area and flooded area last year might be dry this year. And it might be another hundred yards up where he's worked on a different area and backed it up into standing grass. Um, oh. a, a lot of the standing grass is what I find uh, and uh, that gets flooded is just it turns green. It gets soft and it just seems to hold those birds Um I'm hunting them with the yellow lab, and that yellow lab's just perfect in that kind of country. Oh, yeah. Let me, uh, one word of warning. If you're going to cross a beaver dam, cross an old beaver dam, not a new one. Uh, 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 unless you like uh, thrill-a-minute kind of walking. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the places where I've been and the, about the same places you've been. It's, it is a lush, verdant setting. You are framed by mountains that are deep green. Maybe there's still snow on the top of some of those peaks. Yeah. And there's that smell. <laughs> that smell. Yes, sir. How would you? <laughs> how, how, and you know what I mean because we're out there. We're on those streams all year, uh, yeah. for one excuse or another. What? What is, to you? What is the the essential odor out there? You know, it, it, it is an alpine marsh. I mean, you're getting a little bit of that uh, western pine that's kind of blowing along the edges. You're you're getting that kind of inundated beaver pond mud that's there that can be kind of fairly pungent. But you can smell that clean crystal water. It is... Uh, it's kind of just a, a blend of them all, to be honest, um, when you're out, out in those high alpine valleys. And you're correct. It, there's a scent that uh, I wish they put in the candle. Oh, the hair is standing up on the back of my neck. I'm ready to go out again. And so are you. But for a lot of other reasons as well. You know, this is not your day job. What, yeah, I mean, when I first talked with you, you were coming in that day from something almost as fun as snipe hunting. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a fly fishing guide here in Colorado, and it's uh, I, I have to admit, it, it, I I'm almost <laughs> looking at the bank when I'm floating down some days, looking to see if I see snipe. <laughs> so so actually, your day job is scouting for snipe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I don't tell all my clients, but sometimes I'll point them out for some of my clients if if they seem worthy, man. But I have some like 
I know if I tell them, I'm just going to get a little bit of ribbing for the rest of the day. So I got to pick and choose who I let in. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's a small community. It's a, like you said, there's a cult involved in this snipe hunting, I'm sure. But it's it's fun to learn about it. We're always looking for beautiful places to go. And, I, you know, I can't think of any place more beautiful than snipe at 10,000 feet. I mean, everybody get the current edition the autumn edition of upland almanac magazine even the photos alone should get you psyched i don't care what you're going to shoot at next but take a look at it michael salamone is the uh author and the photographer on that i'm scott linden you're listening to the upland nation podcast michael we got to do this again find another weird bird to shoot at and write about it and we'll talk again oh i'd love to i uh, really enjoyed the time here with you and appreciate you reaching out and I, I and i'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the article in upland uh, almanac um i, I really like uh the, those gentlemen over there um it's a quality magazine that uh i've uh, um, enjoyed uh working with in the past and ditto here in fact i got a story coming out in the next issue so uh um we're brothers of another editor yes sir <laughs> Thank you. Again. Thank you, Mr. Carney. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael Salamone. Yeah, have a great season. Maybe I'll see you up in the high country sometime. Thanks a lot. I'd, I'd love to see you with the shotgun or rod. There you go. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And don't you go away because we got a lot more, including some tips to make a better road trip for your dog and some news, which I'm going to hit on right now after I talk about Dr. Tim's natural performance dog food. Yeah, that's what Flick gets because Tim Hunt, the developer, uh, not only knows dogs as a veterinarian, he knows dogs as athletes. He's a sled dog competitor. He knows what performance dogs need, and he provides a number of formulations depending on where you are in your dog's career, from older to younger to uh, needing more protein or more fat. It's all out there. Learn more at drtims.com. Take a look at all the formulations. Uh, you'll find something there. And also dig in a little deeper and take a look at the sources Dr. Tim will tell you where every single ingredient came from and why it's in that dog food. There's nothing in there that doesn't need to be in there. There's nothing in there that doesn't need to be in there, if you know what I mean. 30% discount on your first order if you use the code Upland Nation. That's how he knows I'm doing my job for him. It's all at D-R-T-I-M s.com some fascinating news out there you know the first hunting dog has been found alongside human remains in Georgia yeah European Georgia not the state 1.8 million years old. So we've been hunting with dogs for a long dang time. They concluded, the scientists at the University of Florence, that the remains belong to the species Canis lesionoides, the Eurasian hunting dog, which, hey, was imported from East Asia even back then. Well, George is not too far from there. In other news, uh, 
one of the bright spots in um, in uh, upland hunting for waterfowl if you're traveling you know you know what i mean you want to go to south south dakota you can't get a you know a waterfowl permit north dakota is almost always your alternative unfortunately drought has wrecked that for the year wetlands acreage is down by 80 percent from last year the experts are predicting that the fall flight of ducks that nested and hatched in North Dakota this summer will be down 66% from last year. So take a look at alternatives to that as well. Got good news and I got bad news. And then I'm still reveling in some of that snipe country. Was in it. Didn't see any. Saw just about everything else from gray foxes to nighthawks. But no snipes last week, but man, I'll keep my eyes peeled in the future. Oh yeah, still playing that same music for some reason, but that's another story. I want to talk to you about your next road trip with your dog. That's the subject for This Land is Your Land today. Our public access segment if you want all the details go to findbirdhuntingspots.com it's a brand new article over there and there's a accompanying video with two more tips as well but here are two that i think are are really important and kind of neglected when we hit the road your dog is a well they're called creatures of habit for a reason consistency is really important one of the things that he really looks forward to i know you know this but i just want to reiterate it because on the road we make all sorts of you know changes feed your dog at the same time on the road as you do at home that's one thing he can plan on count on and that reminds him that not everything has changed the smells may be different the location may be but the food shows up at the same time keep your dog happy in that regard it will manifest itself in many ways a happier dog a more secure dog and then yeah the bathroom habits will be a little bit more regular and that will be helpful as well and finally if your drive includes an overnight stop in a hotel invest in one of those foldable fabric crates i'll tell you those those are those deserve a nobel prize they really do they have made my life so much easier i think i have three or four of them for various uses in various places but what they what they do is they 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 make it so easy to get a dog into a hotel room. If you've ever manhandled a rigid crate into a well through a hotel lobby, up the stairs or into the elevator, well, foldable fabric crate eliminates all of that. Save your back, save your sanity. Get one today. And if you want more tips like that, I've got a whole section at findbirdhuntingspots.com on taking care of your dog and traveling with your dog. So check it out, findbirdhuntingspots.com. There we go. That means it's time to say goodbye. I sure appreciate your listening. I hope you'll tell one friend to listen as well. And if you've got a couple more minutes, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. If you want to talk, I'm on Facebook every day. 
at Wing Shooting USA's Facebook page and at the Upland Nation Facebook page. We can talk anytime you want. Sometimes it even ends up on the podcast. I'll leave you with this quote from Aldous Huxley. Go back to your high school English class and remember him. This might be the best thing he ever said. To his dog, every man is Napoleon. Hence, the constant popularity of dogs. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation Podcast. Hope to see you in the field real soon.